Hello. And before we get started with today's podcast, I wanted to mention that this episode originally featured a segment with special guest Erica Smith of the Los Angeles Times, who joined us to talk about the conundrum that Governor Newsom found himself in, fulfilling his pledge to appoint a black woman to fill the next open Senate seat, and also his later pledge to appoint a caretaker. And it was a great discussion. We had a lot of fun talking to Erica. And then about two hours after we had the conversation, the governor announced that he has appointed LaFonza Butler to that Senate seat. So sad to say, uh, you'll never hear that conversation. Trust me, it was great. I'm going to go ahead and move us along to today's regular. So thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. I'm Capital Weekly Editor Rich Eisen, and this is the Cap Weekly Podcast. I'm joined, as always, by my colleague and partner in crime, Tim Foster. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm well, Rich. Thanks. We have a really interesting show today. Our guest, Catherine Miller, works with a variety of advocacy groups and corporations, nonprofits, policymakers, and philanthropists all around the world. Uh, essentially on how to better tackle some of the world's most uh, intractable problems, uh, social justice issues, hunger, climate change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now she's also an author. And her first book, At the Table, The Chef's Guide to Advocacy, uh, comes out actually a few days before this podcast will go to air. So it'll be available by the time you're hearing me speak. Uh, It sounds really interesting to me because it's all about applying those same techniques that she uses in her other endeavors in helping chefs become better advocates for social change and how chefs are leading hunger relief efforts and supporting local farmers and fighting food waste and confronting racism and sexism in the industry. Uh, It's a lot, but, uh, you know, it sounds like uh, she's really got a handle on this. And in that regard... She's going to be appearing here in Sacramento next week, uh, again, this week by the time you're hearing this, at an event for a very special dinner and discussion centered around the book. And it's going to be at, uh, I believe it's going to be, it's going to be at Mulvaney's, correct? Yeah, it's going to be at Mulvaney's next door on yep. Tuesday, October 3rd. Tuesday, October 3rd, and then there's going to be an in-depth discussion about the creation of the book, uh, what advocacy looks like here in the Sacramento area, and uh, of course, probably going to share a recipe or two that highlight uh, what it means to be a chef and an advocate. There'll be a lot of other great chefs there as well. Brad Checky, Nina Curtis, uh, Santana Diaz. I don't want to leave anybody out, of course, Patrick. But uh, we're really here to talk with Catherine. So let's get started there. Uh, Catherine, welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you here. No, thanks for having me. I love Sacramento. It's a delicious city. We are a good food city now. You know, growing growing up here on and off uh, as a young person, you know, we didn't think much of, of our hometown, but it has really become a good food town. That one will stand up by anybody that says we're not a good food town. That's for sure. No, I, you're definitely a good food town. And you're also, you know, the heart, one of the agricultural hearts of California. So um, you can't beat it. Absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit more about the event. I I, I introed it just a bit, but uh, tell us a little bit more about what this event is and the purpose behind it. Um, no, thanks. It's uh, you know, it's next. It's Tuesday, October third. It starts at five thirty. Um, there are tickets available via Resi, the online reservation platform, and it's hosted by um, Chef Patrick Mulvaney, who I got to know 
through a program called the James Beard Foundation Chef's Boot Camp for Policy and Change, and also my role as the founding executive director of an organization called the Chef Action Network. And Patrick and the other chefs like uh, Santana Diaz, as you mentioned, and Brad Checky and Nina Curtis, which I'm super excited about, right? These and um, Nina Rasul and Patricia Wise, like these are chefs who have really risen to the occasion to feed people first, um, change their operations to be more mindful of the issues that face all of us, and to join the fight on various policy pieces, both in Sacramento and then in Washington, D.C. And so I was really excited. Patrick's in the book. Um, there's a story about Patrick's work um, on mental health. And but I he was one of the first chefs I reached out to. I was like, I don't want to go anywhere but Sacramento first. <laughs> and he was he was gracious enough to invite me to come. So uh, it's uh, it's again, it's Tuesday, October 3rd. That's 530. There are special tickets available. It's, and it's actually relatively affordable. It's seventy five dollars for those not in the restaurant and hospitality industry. And it's 50 bucks for anybody in the business. And you happen to get a copy of the book. <laughs> well, I love that. And, and you know. I think one of the things I also really love when you, if you look at any of the discussion around the book, apparently when the idea was first broached to you, you thought the idea was ludicrous. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I had worked at, you know, I have a sort of career in thirds. I spent a third of my life working in democratic politics and for media organizations, a third of my professional life building social impact campaigns and some of the toughest problems around the world for um, organizations like the United Nations Foundation. And then I was a consultant and I was traveling around the world in China and Lebanon and Nigeria, training people to do advocacy work on things like widow's rights for their land, right? And democracy, building new democracies and advocating for healthcare, right? In China, right? And so I had this probably like rarefied vision of myself, right? Oh, I'm a trainer. But two trustees from the James Beard Foundation approached me. One was a guy named Eric Kessler and the other was a chef, Chef Michel Nishan. And what they had seen was this idea that chefs had been accumulating all of this power, um, social media power, social influence power through food network shows, um, economic power uh, as being sitting on every street corner and personnel power, like networks, right? Like, you know, every farmer, every producer, their servers, all the things, right? And they wanted to figure out how you could channel that work for good, right? And I had done some work with Eric Kessler in the past, um, focused on artists and musicians similarly, right? Getting people to prepare to go testify in front of Congress and that kind of stuff. And he was like, we should do the same thing for chefs. And I was like, that's crazy. Like everything I knew about chefs was, uh, I think I probably said it much more strongly like that than that, probably like some sort of blue word in front of it. Um, You know, and what, what I was thinking about was the kitchens that I grew up in as a server, as the daughter of someone who owned a restaurant for 25 years, which is that, you know, chefs didn't exactly have the best track record in my head, right? They yell, they play with sharp knives. They're kind of, they're kind of douchey. Right. Um, But Eric kept thinking about this power and talking to me about the power piece and the penny dropped when I saw them in action at the very first training, I was like, they are natural born storytellers. They're the constituencies any politician craves to meet. 
Um, they have direct access to all of our public leaders via their restaurants. And so, yeah, I thought it was insane. I was like a bunch of tatted up late night drinkers, you know, aren't going to do a whole lot for policy. And I have been um, challenged in that and very surprised by it. Well, and I have to say that really tracks with my own experience. So, uh, I've known Patrick Mulvaney for some years because my wife, before she got, uh, finished her schooling and, and went to work on her own nonprofit, uh, worked there as a server. And it was funny that she knew many elected officials much, much, much better than I ever did because they would come into the restaurant all the time. And if, you know, if they liked her as a server, they'd say, oh, we'll make sure, you know, make sure lives our servant. And, and, there were a lot of elected officials that would cycle through Mulvaney's and the other, uh, you know, the Waterboy, the, the yep. popular restaurants in Sacramento. And they regard the chefs as celebrities. Yeah. And it's really, it's it's an interesting thing that you wouldn't necessarily expect if you're not that familiar with the world. But once you see it in action, you're like, oh yeah, there's they're stars. I mean, it. you look at all the, now you mentioned all the TV stars and that wasn't really a thing 15 years ago, but boy, now, you know, chefs are just celebrities. Yeah. I mean, chefs are celebrities and they have massive followings. They also, you know, most of them don't have the, they're not a, I always say that it takes about a hundred chefs to make one Kylie Jenner, right. <laughs> um, in terms of like the, the network and profile, but what they are is they're heavily influential in their communities, right? So if you think about a place like Mulvaney's, which is literally you know, five minutes from the Capitol, right? If that, um, and you think about the frequency in which the policymaker, the legislators, the governor, others, uh, cabinet secretaries will come in there, you know, and politicians are people too. They want to celebrate their birthdays. They want to toast their anniversaries. They want to have a, a glass of wine with a friend. And they also need places to host events, right? So the chefs and the restaurants become very sort of integral and intimate parts of their circle, right? The circle in which the politicians use. And I always say it's, uh, you know, when you think about lobbyists, like, you know, I I'm, I live here in Washington, D.C., and we have a whole professional class around lobbyists. You guys do, too, in Sacramento, right? And um, I will talk to um, lobbyists about engaging chefs on issues related to policy. And they will tell me, oh, you know, they'll never get a meeting. Like, we do this all the time. Like, I'll, I'll set up a couple of meetings with like the legislative assistant. And I'm like, no, call the scheduler and say Patrick Mulvaney or Nina Curtis or Santana Diaz is coming in to Washington, D.C. or going to Sacramento and coming to the state capitol to talk about something. And they will they will meet with them. And it's like, no, like, that's not going to happen. And more times than not, the lobbyists like sort of ignores my ask and then are totally surprised when they go through the halls of Congress. And, you know, there is, you know, there's a senior aide to Nancy Pelosi who's like, hey, Patrick, what's what, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Right. Um, or, you know, the governor who stops in and has dinner at Mulvaney's and then they have a conversation in the hallway about a mental health bill or agriculture funding, right? So it is, uh, the um, the lobbyists never believe me, but it happens every time. A chef can get a meeting that other people just would die for. Uh, especially probably the lobbyists who would die for getting that meeting. Yeah. I, I'm curious, what kinds of techniques do you, um, where are, do you talk about in the book to help chefs 
learn how to maneuver this world that, as you know, uh, you know, maybe is not their first uh, area of expertise. What kinds of things are, are they going to learn? Are, are people going to learn about how chefs can navigate this world when they read your book? Yeah, I mean, I, I do hope in at the end of the day that the book is really useful to anyone who wants to use their voice on policy change or become a better advocate, because the recipe is fairly simple, right? Uh, hone your interests, right? So chefs and all of us get asked all the time to support this cause, support this cause, do this thing. Um, and we tend to give away a lot more time and treasure and expertise than we actually account for. So, you know, when I first started doing this work and I continue to do this, I help restaurants sort of audit their charitable giving. And you found out like the average is around $50,000 a year. If you're a $50,000 donor to anything, you're a top donor, right? So by narrowing your focus and directing that $50,000 or whatever that number is towards one cause or a couple of initiatives, you know, you've already you've already got half the battle there. And then it's understanding who is your decision maker. So who's the audience that you're trying to reach? And what is it that's going to make them think that what you want them to do is in their best interest, right? So I really focus on, with all advocacy trainings, really focusing on how we open up a conversation, right? How we understand who the audience is, what their motivations are, um, and then we come up with something simple to both tell them about the cause that we care about and also something simple to ask them to do. So that could be as simple as you need to understand the high level of um, food insecurity in the Sacramento area. And I would really love to bring in some folks to talk to you about SNAP benefits or about women and infant children benefits, you know, because that will start to open a conversation. And then you know, the, the final thing that I, you know, I always ask them to do is to really bring in the stories of their teams, the stories of their farmers, right? Because that's where the, the magic of the chef as a translator and as a networker really comes to play. So I think if they, they narrow their focus, if they really hone in on their audience and what they want that audience to do in the simple ask, create some simple messages and, you know, as simple to do um, for that. And then to bring in the the stories of the people in their community, the people who work for them. It's a recipe that doesn't fail. Well, and a lot of those stories are really pertinent with the bigger uh, policy issues we talk about. Because, you know, if you've been around the restaurant industry at all, you know, mental health issues are, are, are certainly significant. Uh, so, you know, drug and alcohol issues uh you know look it's a lot of people in the industry don't make a lot of money it's a it can be very hand to mouth there's there's just a lot of it's a tough industry that has all the same problems everyone else has and so um maybe talk about that a little bit especially the mental health aspect of it and and maybe yeah. where you those advocacy issues can get addressed uh, really well by chefs yeah, I mean the the industry itself is a really troubling industry, right? It even though it is our it is our number one gateway employer, right, in the United States that somebody about one in seven of us will have worked in a restaurant at some point in our life, whether it's a McDonald's or whether it's a Mulvaney's, right? Um, we will have done that food service work, scooping popcorn, et cetera. So it's an, one of the largest, um, you know, places that people will go for employment. But and then it is one of, you know, it's in the top 10 all the time on drug and alcohol abuse, sexual harassment, sexual violence, crime, 
right? Um, it is also, you know, a high, you know, and so there's a lot of mental health issues and a lot of stress. And, you know, I was really introduced to that topic by Patrick Mulvaney in Sacramento um, in the sort of mid 2000s, you all had a, a string of suicides among folks who were restaurant and culinary workers. It was around the same time that Anthony Bourdain um, also tragically killed himself and death by suicide. And, you know, Patrick Mulvaney really stepped into a void to lift up the stories of those folks whose lives had been impacted by suicide, had been impacted by mental health, he and his wife, Bobbin, created a nonprofit and a training. They worked with experts from Blue Cross Blue Shield and Kaiser and the hospital system to create something that was a train the trainer model. And then they didn't just do that. Then they both went to the state government and to Congress to lobby for mental health care coverage um, for restaurant workers and hospitality workers and any non-traditional worker, right? So it's it, it, that type of story that is present all over the country, chefs getting into, you know, digging into these issues, but, um, and really can show that you can look at it from a multi-system, right? You can look at it, how you treat your kitchen, right? That the trainings, the taking care of your staff, how you reach out into your community, right? They really went out into the community to find the community-based experts and trainers, and then how that then becomes a policy conversation. And you can use your networks and connections to fight for funding um, that even goes beyond your own community, right? It wasn't just restaurant workers, it was farm workers. It was all sort of hourly wage and casual workers, the increases in mental health coverage. And we've seen some really big names. Uh, we were talking earlier, you know, when I worked in DC, I lived above Haleo. And we certainly know what Jose Andres has has done in the in the world in the world of trying to feed uh disaster victims or first responders, et cetera. But we've seen other uh, large chain owners too try to deal with the issues around tipping and making making the, the pay scale more fair and all of that kind of thing. Um, you know, how important is it to have figures like that? What impact are, do they have on other chefs who maybe don't have a 200 chain restaurant or what have you? getting involved in their local communities to try to have an impact on these on these kinds of issues. Yeah, I mean I I do love to see the the rising of an organization like the Independent Restaurant Coalition which is a relatively new trade association that is targeting uh, that is a membership is largely made up of small and independent operators or people who have um you know fewer than 10 or 15 locations, right? Those localized chains, those localized networks. Um, because those are the organizations, th those types of the organizations that are helping um, shift this industry, right? It is it is a really hard industry to retrofit, right? Um, our, the wages and workforce issues are built into the business models, right? So when we look at tipping or um, tipped minimum wage or um, those types of things, we're really looking at systems that were born out of the roots of slavery, right? And that's how long they've been there. I mean, we have not had a federal minimum wage increase since the 1990s <laughs> you in california are going to 25 and like the rest of the country is like bup, 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 back here at right and you know so when we look at that it's really exciting i do think the big operators have a place in this right i would like to see more operators large-scale operators like the very large chains um subway mcdonald's right ruby tuesdays whatever I would like to see them more focused on wage and workforce issues, because if they do it, then it's easier for everybody else to do it, right? The small and independent operators are really battling one at a time. 
um, to change things. And so you need those big organizations. They've been a little slow to that. And the restaurant National Restaurant Association hasn't always been the biggest friend to workers. Um, but there's a role for them in this play. Um, and there's a role for um, and there's a role for new organizations like the Independent Restaurant Coalition. What more maybe I'm just thinking back to, you know, to bringing it back to the event at Mulvaney's, you know, what what are you hoping maybe with this, with the book and the tour uh, to accomplish here? What 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 would you like to see at the end of all this? Because you've, you've spent your whole career trying to help people become advocates or better advocates. And now you're you're right in the heart of it with something. This is your first book. So this yep. is not something you've done a dozen times. <laughs> what would you like to see come out of all of this? You know, I really hope that um, I really would like to see the type of social justice and social change curriculums change at culinary schools around the country. Right. So the more I can talk about this, maybe the more pressure there is on a CIA or a Culinary Institute of America or somebody else to put this type of training, because it's not something that chefs are taught. Chefs are taught about flavor, deliciousness and product. They're not talking about business. They're not taught about social justice, right? So one, I really hope that this book starts a conversation in some places that are traditional in the culinary space. But I also think it it has a really easy recipe for change. I'm an eater. I'm a diner. You're an eater. You're a diner, right? Like there's hundreds of millions of us around the country. And if we were a little bit more thoughtful about the places that we um, spent, the places where we spend our money the types of things that impact our food system, the types of things that the food system then impacts climate, wage, workforce, all of those things, we could create a more delicious and just and sustainable food system for all of us that's accessible to all of us. So I really hope, you know, it, your publisher always says like pick an audience and my audience was chefs because that's the, you know, who I've spent the last 10 years of my work, life working with. But it really does the recipe, the book, which is called At the Table, The Chef's Guide to Advocacy, actually is really a recipe for change that any eater or food obsessed person can use themselves. Okay, so one last question. When you're in Sacramento, when you're not eating at Mulvaney's, where else, where do you like to eat? You come to Sacramento, where do you eat? I mean, oh I, I'm sort of calling you out here, but is there? Any I know place? you're totally calling me out because I really only go to Mulvaney's BNL. Have you had that <laughs> tomato salad with the burrata? I know right? the tomato salad. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I you know, it, here's one here's one thing that I everybody will you know laugh about. I will eat Santana Diaz's food any day of the week, and he is the culinary director for the UC Davis Hospital System. He is wow. also one of the most visible public advocates for food as medicine in the country, right? And which is a rising issue. And, you know, if you're going to get sick, go to UC Davis Hospital because the food that Santana and his team are making there is amazing. And so, like, if I, I guess if I'm not eating at Mulvaney's, I'm probably, you know, eating at uh, um, Santana Diaz's. And then I wish I could remember the last place that Patrick took me to um, the name of, uh, but it was pretty amazing. Cause that's my other trick is I just go wherever chefs tell me to go. <laughs> that's a really good trick. Yeah. As a rule of thumb, <laughs> that's a good one. Catherine Miller, we want to say thank you once again. This has been a fascinating conversation. As you noted very accurately, we're all eaters, we're all diners. I find it really interesting. I, you know, I remember just really quickly reading Anthony Bourdain's book and learning his first book and, and, and uh, which was called kitchen confidential yep. and learning so much about the, the background of, of the restaurant industry 
And I've known people who'd worked in the in the field and everything before, but I never had outside of working for a you know a sandwich shop when I was a teenager, never in a restaurant, right? A real you know real restaurant. So it was a really fascinating read for me and a fascinating bit of information. And so it, I, like everyone else, was just so shocked when you know he took his own life, and it really did highlight for me how many uh, how many struggles people in the industry can go through. So it's really uh, inspiring to see the chefs that are out there that develop some power, develop some notoriety, develop that connection to policy, use that power and to, yeah. to try to make change, positive change. So, and it's really great that somebody like you has come along and, and tried to help them in those efforts. So um, a, a lot of positive stuff there. And we're, we're really grateful to have had you come on the show today to talk about, about the book and about the, that effort. So thank you very much. No, thank you for having me. I, like we said a couple of times, I'll see everybody in Sacramento on the 3rd of October. Come join me. If you haven't got your tickets, what are you waiting for? Now's the time. All right. Well, we'll thank you, Catherine. We'll be back in just a bit with who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Tim, I think we have a, often we have multiple possibilities, but I think this week we have a pretty obvious winner, don't you? Uh, yes. Well, anytime you say FBI, arrest, raid, etc., I think it's a clue that somebody's going to place pretty high on our survey in a week. Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, we're talking about Omar Navarro, who has been a frequent uh, challenger as a Republican down in the Los Angeles area, uh, specifically challenging a longtime Representative Maxine Waters. Uh, for her congressional seat. Uh, on Wednesday, the FBI raided his uh, home and he has been indicted on 43 counts of misusing campaign funds, uh, which includes funneling tens of thousands of dollars in campaign donations back to himself through friends and family. Uh, the, the feds also arrested his mom. They arrested a friend. Who knows? There may be more who will eventually get arrested as well. Uh, but this young man is definitely looking at a very long list of very serious charges. So um, what it, I, I know that, I know this guy has been really popular with the hardcore conservative crowd down there. And, and, you know, honestly challenging Maxine Waters in a district like hers is probably a fool's errand to begin with, but uh, you know, he, well, it depends on whether or not your errand is to make a lot of money, which he did. I mean, uh, right. for anyone that's familiar with that that district, any Republican, I don't care who it is. You know, if you have had uh, Ronald Reagan come back from the dead and run as a Republican in that district, I think he would get smoked by Maxine Waters. Wouldn't even be close. But then a person like Omar Navarro, not really well known, raising tremendous amounts of money. He brought in. $1.17 million in 2018. That's a lot of money. And he yeah. brought in almost $750,000 in 2020. I mean, that is a lot of money. And I guess if that's your errand is to bring in that money. Now, the question is, did he use that for something that he was not legally allowed to? That's the FBI allegation. And that's what he's been arrested for. So, uh, Wowzers. But there's a lot of money out there. I guess, you know, I'm assuming most of it is probably not from people in 
Maxine Waters district, you know, they know better, but uh, there's probably people in who knows, Florida, Michigan, Texas, sending this guy checks. Well, you know, it goes to something that, um, you know, when we had Mike Madrid on the show uh, a week or so ago, when he talked about the summons, and I don't remember if it was him that said this directly, but alluding to the, you know, so much now we're so polarized now, it's become an industry to some extent, right? This kind of, this is a grift or, or you know, what would, would appear to be a grift. And we certainly see this and a lot uh, in politics where, yeah, the money has become so nationalized that people send money to people that they don't know, but they just know they represent uh, their side and they are in direct opposition to the other side, which they hate so much that they will send their hard-earned money to these folks without even bothering to check too much about them. And it just goes back to the old uh, Latin, you know, caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. I mean, folks, all we can tell you is before you send anybody money of any party anywhere, you might want to take the time to find out who you're actually sending it to, what's their track record for how it's being spent. Look, I'm really sorry. Uh, our MAGA friends out there, wherever, we've seen this with the president, the former president of the United States, a lot of the same thing, a lot of same accusations against him of using money from donations to pay off all kinds of other things. I mean, look, if you care about where your money's going, pay attention. Do a little research before you write a check. Sure. But, uh, you know, it, this may be in this particular instance, a MAGA issue, but certainly there have been people on the other side who have uh, drummed up support in, an, in a campaign that they had zero chance of winning. Uh, you know, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I know there were several people in deep, deep red districts in the South who were very diligently fundraising and getting money and then just getting swamped in the election. I mean, it wasn't even close. They didn't really do anything other than, you know, get, uh, you know, liberals to write them a check against, you know, pick your candidate in deep red seat. And in fact, I don't know if this will come to fruition, but I just saw that the host, uh, Sink Ungir of the Young Turks, is kicking around the idea of running uh, against President Biden in the presidential primary. And I thought, Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a guy who ran for a congressional seat and got less than 5% of the vote. Uh, I think Christy Smith is the one that uh, got, you know, got the, ma the majority of the vote, the Democratic vote. And yet he's going to be out there on the Young Turks and ostensibly, I'm assuming he would probably be fundraising, etc. So he hopefully would use the money in a way that is uh, better than what uh, Omar Navarro is being accused of, but there's a long tradition on both sides of people raking in a bunch of cash when they have more or less zero percent chance of of you know making it. So absolutely, this is not a, a exclusively at all to MAGAs or Republicans or Democrats. This has been something that's gone on forever and a day. It's like I say, caveat emptor. If you if you're going to give money. Well, because it's the same thing with charities, right? You 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 really need to check out a charity before you give them money and see how much of it goes to overhead, how much of it goes to the cause. Because you we find, I won't name them. There's a, there's many really well known five hundred one c three charities around the country that raise a lot of money every year, and you know every year reporters do stories detailing how much of that money is actually going to pay lavish salaries or 
what have you, uh, and how little of it actually goes to the cause that, that people think they're giving to. And it's really the very simple or very same thing here. We're, we're talking about somebody raising money for a cause you maybe want to believe in, but again, do your homework and use some logic. I think in politics, I think what you're alluding to is even more uh, of a red flag. If you've got somebody running in a district that they legitimately should have no chance to win, that doesn't mean you shouldn't give them money, right? I mean, we no one thought AOC was going to win her district in New, in New York a few years ago, right? It does happen. But just have your eyes open before you write the check because so there's a, there's a, always that possibility that you were just flushing good money down the toilet. Now, on the flip side, you could Capital Weekly is a 501c3 nonprofit. You can go to the Capital Weekly website, find out how to donate. And, you know, I mean, I'm driving a 2004 Toyota, so we're not getting rich on, uh, on salaries here. So I know that if you donate to Capital Weekly, we will put your money to careful use. Right. Well, we will uh, next week. We will be bringing you our women's health conference in bits and pieces. We will have four separate podcasts presenting the four programs that we had this week, and uh, so keep keep your eyes out for that. Really good programs. I found them really fascinating, and I'm looking forward to getting those all cut together for you next week. Yeah, great panels. I I, I would say that even if I wasn't doing this job right now. Those were really, really good panels. So yeah, keep the, everybody uh, pay attention and they'll uh, watch for those to be out uh, soon. All right, Rich, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Have a great week, everybody. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.